Good morning. Seven minutes after 10 o'clock, the Supreme Court is at it. They are back. Several cases of interest, one of them dealing with uh, Dud Flop or Dodd Frank as it's technically uh, named. But we'll get into that a little later in the program. Right now, it's gun control. Here is the case. Uh, it is the United States versus Rahimi. Uh, it's currently pending before the Supreme Court. It presents uh, some interesting arguments about the Second Amendment. Let me tell you a little bit about Rahimi. He um, he had a restraining order entered against him because he dragged his girlfriend, dragging her, uh, then hit her head on the dashboard of a car. After hitting his girlfriend, he shot at a potential witness. He repeatedly violated his restraining order. In November 2020, he threatened another woman with a gun, leading to his arrest. Months later, police say that he participated in five shootings, including in the presence of children. This is why uh, Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland wants, wanted this case uh, fast-tracked to the Supreme Court. Rahimi is an odious person. And Garland wants the court to have it to have to choose between defending Bruin and and ruling in favor of Rahimi. So here's the thing: Should you have a law that says somebody has been given a restraining order, ergo they can't have a gun? Should governments be able to say, this guy beat his wife, she filed a restraining order, he shouldn't own a gun? Or is that a violation of the Second Amendment? Is it reasonable to suggest that someone who is violent shouldn't own a gun? Or who is potentially violent shouldn't own a gun. If somebody is beating their wife, maybe he hasn't pulled a gun on her. Maybe he's threatened her. Maybe he's beat her. She files a, a restraining order. Should he be told you can't have a gun? Is there a problem with how do we how do we protect these women who are vulnerable? Should the Supreme Court decide that Rahimi was not guilty of any crime because he had a gun? I mean, this guy is is a cretin from the word go. Hit his, it took his girlfriend's head and smashed it against the dashboard. God, I hope it was a padded dashboard. After dragging her uh, and then... He shot at somebody. See, in my mind, the problem here is that this guy wasn't off the streets. That's an assault. And shooting at somebody, oh, that's attempted murder. I, this case shouldn't have gone, this shouldn't have been possible right from the get-go. This was mishandled right from the get-go. When he pulled out a firearm and shot at a potential witness... 
That should have been it. Court, guilty, prison. Just that fast. And they could have held him in court, uh, you know, tried him for assault, and locked him up while they put together the case on the gun, on the, uh, on the attempted murder. But now, because of the way we view these laws and the way they're, they've been written, this guy is forcing the Supreme Court to support Bruin or support him. I don't think anybody wants to see him supported. Should someone who has a restraining order be allowed to have a gun? Imagine, see, women lack the upper body strength that men have. It would be easy for me to beat up my wife. She wouldn't have a chance. She wouldn't have a snowball's chance. And I, I, I have a better reach. I have got a harder punch. I, uh, there's no way she's going to ever be able to defend herself against me. My wife actually can. <laughs> she's a better shot than me. So I always yeah, treat her with a lot of respect. But should we allow people who have a restraining order for violence against their, you know, spouse or, or live-in or relationship significant other, should they be allowed to own a gun? 874-9390-800-529-5572. What I'm going to do here uh, is I am going to... Uh, I'm going to check in with Hannah and find out what she thinks. Hannah, oh, you're, you're about to get married now, right? I am. It's coming up. And, you know, if your fiancé starts beating on you, can you beat him up? I mean, I probably would be able to in self-defense, yes, but I also would not stick around to find out. <sighs> So you think you're, you're, are you actually tougher than him? I don't know about tougher, but I don't know. Well. He's a firefighter, so I think I oh, lose that one. Yeah, I don't think you're going to beat your, <laughs> no, I don't think you're going to beat him. Uh, and, and I'm sure that uh, he's in, in pretty good shape. So if it were, if you were in a relationship and the guy was violent, do you think we should be able to tell him he can't own a gun? See, I don't... It depends on, I guess, if it's been proven that he was violent or if he's been charged with anything. I think, for me, that makes a big difference. Yeah, see, this guy should have been tried. He, he should I have agree. been... He should not have been on the streets. When he bashed her head into the dashboard, that's assault. And there's a witness that he shot at. That's attempted murder. This guy should never have been on the street. I, uh, I don't know why he wouldn't have been locked up. I, I would have thrown this guy behind the bars and I'd have kept him there. 874-9390-800-529-5572. Robert, good morning. Good morning. Um, should he be denied his right to farm? No. Um, it would be like saying because 
you are a talk show host and you say something hurtful to me that they should take away your First Amendment right. I mean, it's a slippery slope. You start this and where does it stop? So you would say Rahimi had a right to own a gun uh, in spite he, of the fact that he shot at somebody and beat the well, snot out of Now, that's where the justice system has failed. It's the court system that failed on that. So you're saying what I'm saying, that he should have been he should have been behind bars. Yes. If they would have done their job, then they wouldn't have had this problem of whether he can have a firearm or not. Yeah, I I agree. You, know, um, you, you can't you can't take away someone's right. I mean, then where does it stop? You know. All right, Robert. Thank you. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Jerry, good morning. Hey, Gary. How you doing? I am well, thank you. Well, good to hear that. Hey, I just kind of tuned in with uh, your topic of restraining orders and firearms ownership. Yeah. And I think one thing people don't really think about, particularly, because this is my personal situation. I carried a firearm for a living for many years. And in my divorce, my wife, or as leading up to it, my wife went to the cops, lied about it, just spread out lied about it, just so that I would not be able to use a firearm to make a living. And... The, the justice system is just so skewed against men. Now, it sounds like this guy here, he was a bad guy. But he was a bad guy way before this restraining order started. And that's where we're failing. So, again, you're agreeing with me. He, sh he shouldn't have been on the street. Absolutely. Shouldn't have been an issue. Mm -mm. But because there was the system particularly in these domestic violence cases, is so skewed against a man, it, it's, we're, we're all, I mean, I don't consider myself a victim, but in a lot of ways we are. And my ex-wife wound up going to jail for six months, and I got custody of the kids, and everything worked out, but there's a lot of fellas get jerked over by this, and there's a lot of women who are also get, uh, well, some of them get dead because the law is not doing its job. Yeah, restraining order is useless. Yes, absolutely. Unless, the, unless there's a police officer, uh, you know, standing next to her when he approaches. Uh, it's, well, it's usually he said, she said, and... Absolutely. It's just a piece of paper. Well, All right. The best thing is for everybody to be able to defend themselves. Man I agree. or woman. I agree. Jerry, thank you for the call. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Gary, Rodney, are you insinuating that bad people don't follow laws? They don't listen to pieces of paper? Well, yeah, that's why gun control <laughs> works so well. Right, <laughs> exactly. Against the law to own a gun, so bad guys never do. Rodney, good morning. Yes, sir. On this same vein, you recall here, it's been two or three years ago, there was a shooting at the uh, Waffle House. Yes. And a guy got killed. Guy who pulled the trigger was found innocent because it was self-defense. Yet they prosecuted him for being a felon in possession of a gun. I got, I got a problem with that. Yep. I, I do too. I got a big problem with that. 
I have exactly. argued. I have argued, Rodney, that if you have gone to prison, done your time, and they decided that you should be able to mix and mingle with the public, they're turning you loose on the street. You should have the same right to defend yourself as anybody else. A third guy that if he hadn't had guns would probably be dead. He defended himself, self-defense, and then they turn around and prosecute him yeah. for felon in possession. Yeah, it's absolutely unfair. Absolutely unfair. Rodney, thank you for the call. I'm up against the clock. In fact, I'm running a little bit late. Uh, and Hannah won't let that happen. Oh, nay, nay, Perlene. We'll take this quick break and come back three minutes from now on the Gary Nolan Show on the Zimmer Radio Network. 23 minutes after 10 o'clock. Glad to have you with us. If you've got a kid in school, there's a case pending in front of the Supreme Court that may be of interest to you. Three separate federal appeals courts have confronted the issue about what your kids want to be called in school. Uh, he, she, it, I, I don't know, whatever options they uh, they have. Um, but the schools and the, their administrations have to choose between what they consider the needs of the students on one, on one hand, excuse me, and the demands of the parents on the other. And this all has to do with gender and pronoun preferences at school. And this is actually headed to the Supreme Court. The, uh, the latest dispute came from parents, uh, Stephen Foote and uh, his significant other, Marissa Silvestri. Uh, they're suing a range of government entities. Because Massachusetts public schools, the law alleges uh, that during the 2020-21 school year, their child approached a teacher about feelings of depression, low self-esteem, and possible attraction to the same gender. The teacher then spoke with the child's mother, uh, and uh, the child's mother said that she was getting the child professional help, asked the school staff to not have private conversations with the child about this. The child was 11 years old at the time. And the child then sent an email to school personnel self-identifying as genderqueer and announcing a new name and list of preferred pronouns. Then the school counselor responded with an email to staff saying, consistent with a policy sanctioned by the Ludlow School Committee, this is where they're at, this Ludlow, uh, that they should not use the new preferred name and pronouns when communicating with the parents. Around the same time, the child's sibling who was then 12 years old, also began using a different name. The school didn't tell the parents. The parents are upset. Imagine this happens to you. You send Junior to school, and Junior decides that he is, you know, a she, and comes up with their own new name, and the school doesn't tell you about this. Well, when the parents found out about this, they complained to the school about negative consequences their children might experience as a result of being able to use names and pronouns associated with the opposite sex. They were upset that the staff disregarded their instructions. The school superintendent publicly defended the school's actions and asserted that, quote, 
For some students who are transgender or gender nonconforming, school is the only safe place to express who they are. This is your child. It's not their child. It's your child. How would you feel? What would your response be? If you sent your son or daughter to school and they decided we're going to, you know, we're going to let them change their sex and their name. They were not going to tell the parents. The parents are saying they violated three rights. The fundamental parental rights to direct the education and upbringing of their children. They say their fundamental right uh, to direct medical and mental health decision uh, making uh, decision making for their children, and a fundamental right to familial privacy and family integrity. Now, these aren't rights that are identified in the Constitution. Though, if you look at the doctrine of enumerated powers, you don't see where the government, at the federal level anyway, has any right to get involved. But if this happened to your kid, if you found out they were doing this behind your back, how would you respond to that? What would your reaction be when you sent George to school and when he got to school, he called himself Louise and wore a dress? Should the school be obligated to tell you this is what your son or daughter is doing? Should the school be obligated to, to let the child do that? To let the child change their, their name? What should we do in that case? Should the school provide a safe place, a safe space, where this confused child can explore the other side? Or should they be obligated to tell the parents? Should they ignore what the child wants? Or should they do what the child wants? 874 9390 800 Should they at least be obligated to tell the parents? Wouldn't you want to know? I would think you would want to know. I would want to know. I also think that you as a parent should be the one who ultimately gets to make the decision about which way to travel on this road. Do I agree with the child and let the child explore it? Do I tell the child, no, this is your name, this is your sex, let's, uh, let's look into this uh, and, and get some counseling? Should the school be obligated to tell you and or should the school be obligated to help the child explore that side of their psyche? Gary Nolan Show, Zimmer Radio Network.
This is the Gary Nolan Show. Good morning, 1035. Glad to have you with us. Supreme Court cases are um, piling up, and they just started today. One of them dealing with whether or not the schools should have an obligation to tell parents if their kids are engaging in transgender activity, changing their name, identifying as the opposite sex. Or should the schools try to protect these children and give them a safe space to explore this? As a parent, how do you feel? Should the, should the schools be, by law, obligated to tell you? Uh, my personal opinion is they should. Uh, but also, in my personal opinion, government schools shouldn't exist. You should be able to pick a school that has the policies for your children that you want. You, frankly, should be able to homeschool your kids. But the Supreme Court is being torn. There are parents who are suing and believe that it should be their right to decide whether or not to cater to those children who are somehow convinced or concerned that they are transgender. 874-9390-800-529-5572. By the way, coming up at 11.05, Brian Houseworth, the news god for Zimmer Radio, is going to be with us. We're going to talk about this uh, $20 million expansion of the MU Research Reactor. Whew, that's a lot of money. Is it a good idea? We'll find out. We'll check in with Brian Houseworth. Uh, if you want to reach me, you can go to GaryNolan.com. You can send me a message. It will pop up in studio. And uh, Bill has done just that. The school should tell the parents. So if the school should tell the parents, Bill, should there be a punishment? Should they be fired if they, if they don't? Uh, I, I'm not sure how you get school board, like the one, for instance, in Columbia, to do the right thing. It, it, and this is frustrating. I don't know what it's like in Springfield, once again, uh, but here in Columbia, we've had some really good candidates run for school board, uh, and they, they just can't get in. The left just dominate. And, and and you can't get, you can't even get a view from the other side because they won't let any conservatives in. But I agree, it's your kid, you decide how to raise that kid, it's your obligation, your moral obligation to raise that child, and the school should have nothing to do with this. I don't even understand how the schools got to this point. Really, I, I don't, I don't understand how they got here. Their job was to teach your child to read, teach him basic math. To expose him to some, him or her, to science, uh, to uh, give them some uh, insight into literature. Just prepare them for their future with regard to education. How do we get to the point where the schools are deciding whether or not to keep secrets from you about the health of your child, mental or otherwise? Well, and I was sitting here thinking, Gary, that I can't think of any other health-related topic about your child that a school district would keep from you. 
Yeah. You know, if, if your kid throws up at school, like you're going to get a phone call saying, hey, you probably need to come pick up your kid. We think they're sick. So to keep something this large a secret from the parent to me is crazy. Yeah. I mean, would they would they perform an appendectomy without telling you? No. Because it's a medical procedure. And mental health is a medical uh, 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 procedure. Yeah, mental uh, health is physical health. Yeah, how would how would they? I don't even know how they could rationalize this. It's crazy, and yet it's going on. Uh, they just should not have the that right. You are the parent. You're supposed to know. They need to tell you. They they should never keep that a secret and get away with it. Um, I got a couple other things, a couple of pet peeves. As everybody knows, I hate battery-powered cars. What? They're stupid. <laughs> they're, they really, they are. They're absolutely, it's, it's insane. They lie about the miles that you get out of them. And, and, and it's very devious the way they do it. They'll tell you on a full charge, you can get 350 miles. What they don't tell you is that when you're 300 miles from home on your way to another 300 miles of, of driving... You don't get to charge to 100%, only to 80%. Now you're stopping more often, uh, and it takes forever to fill the damn thing. So that that is, uh, in my opinion, one of the problems. But there are a whole host of other problems. And what one of the problems is that the damn things are heavy. Battery-powered cars are way heavier than regular cars. Parking garages are starting to have issues, aren't they? Yes, yes. Parking garages are having a, an issue. There's only so many of them they can take because they were built to hold cars with a, a gasoline-powered uh, engine or a diesel-powered engine. But the weight of the car has another problem. They wear out tires like there's no tomorrow. When contemplating the emissions from road vehicles, our first thought is often about the various gases coming out of the tailpipe. But new research shows that we should have more concern about the harmful particles that are shed from tires and brakes. Scientists have a good understanding of the engine emissions, which typically consist of unburned fuel, oxides, carbon, that sort of thing. But apparently now they're going after particles of tire and, and brakes which, by the way, are also strained. When you're stopping that extra mass, you're chewing up more brake shoe, and that's getting in the air. Uh, a research paper has just been released highlighting the impact of tire pollution by examining the plight, the plight of coho salmon in West Coast streams. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's silly, but it's true. Scientists... Eventually identified a chemical called 6-PPD, typically used in tire manufacturing, to slow cracking and uh, degradation. Apparently, when you're driving down the street, your tire's wearing out, this gets out in the air, and now others, you know, fish are starting to get, and I'm sure it's in us too. So now we don't like gasoline, we don't like vehicles with tires, and we don't like brakes. So, 
I guess if we want to make the environmentalists happy, we should ride horses. Then, of course, they'll complain about horse poo and what a pollutant that is. Methane emissions. Yes, especially when (laughs) they step in it. There will be no making them happy. Their solutions are impossible to achieve. So this guy wrote a a thing about his battery-powered car. And he has a lot of grievances about these things uh, that, that really people need to take into consideration. One of them, of course, is the price. About 12 grand higher than a gasoline-powered car. So that's a problem. Um, public charging costs. I didn't realize this. The discourse around the costs extends to the realm of recharging. The EV owner uh, discovered an unsettling reality at public charging stations. Recharging his electric truck costs more than a traditional gasoline refill. Really? He underscores the uh, disruption of uh, the anticipated cost-saving narrative, invoking the critical uh, reflections of the economic implications of widespread EV adoption. But apparently, it costs him more than if he were using gasoline. The alternative to public charging stations are home charging setups. And they come with their own financial implications. Uh, they can cost a you know a thousand dollars for an installation, and that adds to the cost. These are real issues that people aren't considering, and really need to. The uh, road tax dilemma. Instead of charging you a tax by the uh, you know per gallon of gasoline, you're you're using an electric vehicle. You're getting away with something. And they have to figure out a way to tax battery-powered cars to maintain the roads. You got higher insurance premiums that than the people who have gasoline-powered vehicles. No, nobody talks about this stuff. This, this is what you have to consider. And, and, of course, we've talked about the mining... Uh, the cobalt uh, and all those uh, dangerous uh, uh, minerals needed to run these batteries. These things are a failure. In Europe, they've backed it off by five years. They've backed it off by five years, the mandate to get rid of uh, internal combustion engines. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, I think they have to wake up and, and stop the madness. Because this is just not going to work, and it is killing us in terms of finances. Ford is losing billions of dollars trying to develop battery-powered cars that people will want. It's and, And it's part of the problem that the unions are striking over. Throw a battery and a motor in a car, it's a lot less labor-intensive than building a car with a gasoline-powered engine. You don't need a transmission, really. You don't even need a, a typical drive shaft uh, driving down the middle of the car. Put the motors you know, right up against the wheel. All right. I'm up against the clock. When I come back, you know these uh, attacks on vaping? Well, just as I predicted... There is a horrible downside to attacking vaping. 
That's next on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. 1052, glad to have you with us. Glad to be with you. 874-9390, toll-free numbers 800-529-5572. In Columbia, we got a $20 million expansion of the MU Research Reactor. We'll get the details on that from the news god. That would be Brian Houseworth. Uh, that'll be at 11.05. We were talking about EVs. This guy that owned an EV has just really exposed the, uh, the downside to them, at least parts of it. Coming up, uh, I've been telling you that this vaping uh, nonsense, the anti-vaping nonsense, is, is deadly. And I've even said in the past that what this study has uncovered is, in fact, uh, was, in fact, going to happen. Uh, it is another one of my predictions that has come true. Uh, on the EVs, let me get Mike on the line very quickly. Mike, good morning. Hey, Gary, how are you doing? I am well, thank you. I just read an article this morning, and I cannot remember which source it was from, but uh, the Panasonic is building an EV battery factory in Kansas, the state of Kansas, and the local energy company is spelled E-V-E-R. G-Y, Evergy, said they're going to have to delay the shutting down of a coal-fired power plant because the factory takes so much energy. <laughs> and the plant that they were going to close, they were not going to open back up at all. But now they're planning on opening it back up and converting it to natural gas in the future because of the energy demands of the plant. So it's crazy, isn't it? another added demand on our, our grid, basically. I love the fact that they want us to all put up solar panels made in China, uh, and the factories that make the solar panels use coal uh, power plants to generate the electricity to run the plant. If, if uh, that's just unreal. It's, yeah, if solar works so well, why would they need to be hooked up to a coal power plant in order to make them? I I'm not sure. I, I do know here in Springfield, you have a choice of opting into having part of your electricity furnished by our solar farm outside of town. And I think you actually pay more money if you opt into that. Yeah, we've got something similar to that in Columbia, uh, where if you want the green energy produced uh, for your home, uh, it costs more, but you can opt into that. So if you've got too much money, <laughs> uh, there's, a way to, there's a way to burn it. Just sign up for the more expensive electricity. And, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people of the D persuasion that did that. Yeah, I, it, it's it's unbelievable. It's just, it's it's so stupid. All right, Mike, thank you for the call, buddy. I appreciate it. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Yeah, you, you can sign up for the more expensive electricity because you got too much money. Oh, man, the nonsense. All right, so several years ago this started. I went into a restaurant in Columbia and... Let me just roll the, back, uh, the clock back even further. There was a time when you could walk into any bar or restaurant anywhere in the country, and you would find uh, it was either a smoking business or a non-smoking business or some combination where you had a smoking section and a non-smoking section. And everything worked out fine, and then they came up with this nonsense about secondhand smoke, which is a lie, and I've exposed it. In fact, I was the number one uh, uh, leading uh person on TV, Fox News, MSNBC, uh, and debated all of the uh, secondhand smoke people and beat them to a pulp. 
But anyway, I suggested that if you were, I went into this restaurant and they wouldn't let anybody vape. And I said, you know, if I can't vape, if I still have to stand outside to vape, I might as well just stand outside and smoke. If you wanted to stop people from smoking, if you wanted to convert them from smoke from uh, smoking to vaping, which is much safer, you would let them vape inside. You know, gee, I have a choice. I have to stand outside and smoke or I can stay inside and vape. I'll stay inside and vape. Fewer people smoking, fewer people getting lung cancer. Just the opposite will happen, I suggested, if you can't. If you can't vape, you can't get a vape that you want, you'll keep smoking. Well, a new study has come out. A study found that high rate of substitution between vapes and cigarettes, suggesting that policies aimed at preventing underage use are undermining public health. Uh, this, uh, the story is at Reason Magazine. Brian Hansen uses a, a flavored vape. I use a flavored vape. Everybody, I, I don't know anybody that uses the tobacco flavor. They all have a, a, a flavor. Mine is a, 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 a kind of a, a tiramisu flavor. And Brian's, I, I don't even know what you call it. It's carny four or something like that. But, I, but it's definitely a pastry flavored vape. Some people like fruit-flavored vapes. My wife likes the fr fruit-flavored vapes. But they keep trying to say, oh, no, you're catering to children. Because apparently adults don't like fruits and vegetables, or fruits and desserts. Well, I don't know how they came to that conclusion. So they've been restricting flavors of nicotine vaping products. And what they've discovered, after analyzing retail sales from 44 states... For each fewer 0 0.7 uh, milliliter nicotine pods sold in jurisdictions with those policies, they found consumers bought 15 more cigarettes. That's the trade-off. You can't get a vape with a flavor you like. You go ahead and just smoke. They tell you you can't vape. You go ahead and smoke. This equates to over a pack more cigarettes per pod for the size of the current leading products like Views and Alto and others. The substitution effect. This is the problem with public health getting involved in private decisions. Smoking among kids has gone down year after year after year and really plummeted with vapes. But if you can't get something you like, might as well go ahead and smoke. Boy, that makes me feel safer. You're listening to The Gary Nolan Show on the Zimmer Radio Network. This is The Gary Nolan Show 